said, why are you persecuting me? So Christ is still on the cross. Behold, I stand at the door of God. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. You're listening to Behold the Man with your host, Joe McClain. I am anxious, Lord, and I wonder what I need to understand. Things that happen in my life, though I know you have a plan. You've seen my every action, thought you know my every move. You know the times I need you most, I don't always choose to turn to you. Buenos dias, que tal? Welcome back to Behold the Man. I'm your host, Joe McLean. It's great to be back with you again this week. This week, it's part two of being redeemed through the waters of creation. Last week, we looked at the prototypes of Adam and Noah and Moses and how they prefigured the sacrament of baptism in their actions. This week, we look at another Old Testament figure. It's the prophet Jonah. For an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. But the only sign given will be the prophet Jonah. We're going to dive into that this week. That intro song is released by Noel Garcia. And you can find a link to her website, as well as the show notes and the, the homework assignments and all of that on my website at catholichack.com. In fact, the featured resource this week is going to be called Exploring the Depth of Exploring the Depths of Jonah, a Bible study on the book of Jonah by Dr. Scott Hahn. This is actually a very old Bible study. It goes back to the 90s, I think. And I have it in tape cassette form. Can you believe that? But uh, I'm sure they produce it now on CDs. But I'll link to that on the website at catholichack.com. It was a phenomenal resource, a phenomenal Bible study, and I cannot highly recommend it enough, so check that out. Let's begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. All praise and glory and honor be to you, Almighty God, as we come together again to study your word, and we, we hope to proclaim your glory. 
We ask you to send us the gift of the Holy Spirit to be upon us as we dive deep into this scripture. We ask you to help us to soak in it, that we might proclaim it with every pore of our being, that your glory alone may be made manifest and not ours. We also pray for the suffering souls in purgatory. May God cleanse them of their iniquity and unite them into the beatific vision. We pray for the conversion of sinners. We pray for the unification of all believers into the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We pray for those who are displaced and suffering due to disaster, violence, or unrest. May God, who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, grant them peace and provide for all of their needs. We pray for our Lenten journey to the, to the cross on Calvary. May we have the courage to live as saints today and to love our Lord with all our hearts. May Our Lady intercede for us along this journey. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, we have a lot of material to cover, as we always do, it seems. But I wanted to read to you some paragraphs from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Baptism in the Economy of Salvation, paragraphs 1217 all the way through 1284 in the Catechism. They're excellent, worth your time, and you will see a greater and more profound look at this beautiful sacrament than I could ever give you. But these first few, paragraphs 1217 through 1222, actually go into the same material that you and I have been talking about. It's phenomenal. It's almost as if the church knows what she's talking about, huh? <laughs> okay, well, let's take a look. Paragraph 1217, quote, In the liturgy of the Easter Vigil, during the blessing of the baptismal water, the church solemnly commemorates the great events in salvation history that already prefigured the mystery of baptism. Father, you gave us grace through sacramental signs, which tell us of the wonders of your unseen power. In baptism, we use your gift of water, which you have made a rich symbol of the grace you give us in the sacrament. Paragraph 1218. Since the beginning of the world, water, so humble and wonderful a creature, has been the source of life and fruitfulness. Sacred scripture sees it as overshadowed by the Spirit of God. At the very dawn of creation, your Spirit breathed on the waters making them the wellspring of all holiness. Paragraph 1219. The church has seen in Noah's Ark a prefiguring of salvation by baptism, for by it a few, that is, eight persons, were saved through water. The waters of the great flood you made a sign of the waters of baptism. That make an end of sin and a new beginning of goodness. Paragraph 1220. If water springing up from the earth symbolizes life, the water of the sea is a symbol of death, and so can represent the mystery of the cross. By this symbolism, baptism signifies communion with Christ's death. Paragraph 1221. But above all, the crossing of the Red Sea, literally the liberation of Israel from the slavery of Egypt, announces the liberation wrought by baptism. 
You freed the children of Abraham from the slavery of Pharaoh, bringing bringing them dry-shod through the waters of the Red Sea, to be an image of the people set free in baptism. And finally, paragraph 1222. Baptism is prefigured in the crossing of the Jordan River, by which the people of God received the gift of the land promised to Abraham's descendants, an image of eternal life, the promise of this blessed inheritance is full, is fulfilled in the new covenant, unquote. So, a phenomenal insight into how typology works in salvation history. We see in the Old Testament those foreshadowing moments that would come to their perfection in the New Testament, and specifically in the sacraments themselves. Now, this week, we're going to be exploring the link of death and resurrection through the waters of baptism. Last week, we mentioned St. Paul's writings in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. I'll read them again for you here. Quote, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, so we see here a washing away of sins because we unite with Christ in his death. That death being a divine moment in the history of mankind. And so we have no power, but when we unite with Christ, we have ultimate power. Think of it that way. And so we enter into his death, we go into the belly of the whale, into the earth for three days, three nights, roughly, parts of three days anyway, and we are resurrected with him. What a beautiful, beautiful promise that St. Paul makes, not of his own doing, but it is the very promise that comes to us from the mouth of our Lord himself in the gospel, that we will be resurrected on the last day, right? John chapter 6 comes to mind, for instance. Now, we need to see another link here. And I mentioned at the top of the show that, that an evil and, gener- and an adulterous generation seeks a sign, but only one sign shall be given it, the sign of Jonah. Let's read from St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 38 through 41. Quote, then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, We wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will arise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Unquote. Now, notice what's going on here. A very quick background. If you read the rest of, of this conversation that our Lord is having with these scribes and the Pharisees, you'll notice that they too are stiff-necked, a lot like Jonah's own people. Okay, The, the ten northern tribes were very stiff-necked people. So was Judah, for that matter. But in the, in the context of Jonah, 
He was, he was a prophet of very stubborn people, people who were wayward, turning away from, from God, just like these scribes, just like these Pharisees here in St. Matthew's Gospel, right? Now, these very people accused our Lord of being possessed, not just by any demon, but by the devil himself. That's how, that's how stiff-necked they are. Okay, Jonah too, as I said, was a prophet of a stiff-necked people, and his people worshipped these calves set up in new high places by the Samaritan kings. You see, uh, the king did not want his people to go down to Jerusalem and worship at the temple. So instead, what does he do? He sets up calves, just like in the book of Exodus, when the people uh, turned their hearts away from God, and they had Aaron fashion them a golden calf, and they worshipped it. Okay? So we see the same thing happening all over again in the history of the people of Israel. When they broke off the ten tribes from, from Judah, what happens? The king sets up these new high places and says, Here, here are your gods. Here is the God who led you out of the land of Egypt. Worship this. Same exact language from the Sinai incident. And so this is the background of, of Jonah. This is the people whom he comes from. They are stiff-necked and they have turned away from God. And God warned them, but they would not listen. And so we see here the scribes and the Pharisees refusing to listen to one who is greater than the prophet Jonah. So you see a parallel between Jonah and Jesus just in the people whom he is dealing with, right? Now they ask for a sign, right? And the sign is Jonah. Now what happened? Jonah went and preached to the Ninevites. The Ninevites, they were, that was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. And that king of Assyria would one day, some 40, less than 40 years after Jonah went there, would come down and decimate the 10 northern tribes. He would utterly destroy them and carry them off. And so this was a very, very unique moment in the life of a, of a prophet of Ephraim, for he was being asked to go and to help with the repentance of the very people who would one day destroy his people. So you can imagine he might be a little reluctant to do that. And so they repented, the Ninevites did, and they called a fast. And God, of course, withheld his judgment from them. And then, as I said, less than 40 years later, God used those very same Assyrians to destroy the 10 northern tribes of Israel. But Jonah went down into the depths, and on the third day, he arose, and then he went off to these Gentile Ninevites. Jesus, too, in a parallel fashion, he goes down into the depths of the earth for three days, right? And on the third day, he arises in resurrection glory. And then what happens? His church goes to the Gentiles, just like Jonah did. Only it's to the Romans, right? And what happens some 40 years later? Judgment comes upon these stiff-necked people. And in 70 AD, the Romans destroy Jerusalem and utterly decimate all the inhabitants there. Some a million people were slaughtered, according to Josephus' work, uh, a first century historian, a Jew, by the way. So we see this in this, uh, these parallels between Jonah and our Lord. And it doesn't stop there. It gets actually a little more intense, but we need to now go back to the book of Jonah and see some of these baptismal links 
that uh, our Lord is bringing to the forefront for us. The death and resurrection of Jonah the prophet, right? Jonah is told by God to arise, to go to Nineveh, to warn them of coming destruction if they don't repent. But let's see what happens. Chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, quote, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Unquote. So he's told to arise and go and preach. But what does he actually do? That's the question. Does he arise or does he go some other direction? <laughs> Chapter 1, verses 3. Or let's just read verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Wow. He goes down. He doesn't arise. He goes down. He runs from the Lord? I mean, what kind of prophet of God runs from the Lord? What is going on here that he does everything opposite of what God is asking him? Right? I mean, he doesn't rise, he doesn't go, he doesn't preach boldly, he runs, he goes down the very opposite direction. Now, we're going to see the same old ingredients that we talked about last week. Listen for this. You have a man, you have water, and you have a great and mighty tempest, a wind, right? We talked about that, how in John chapter 3, we see a double entendre. The spirit, panuma, is the same word used for both spirit and wind. It blows where it wills, right? And we saw the wind over the, the waters of creation. We saw the wind over the floodwaters of Noah. We saw the wind push back the waters of the Red Sea, etc., right? Uh, we will even see the wind over the waters of the Jordan in Joshua and the people crossed in dry-shod land, right? But here, chapter 1 of Jonah, verse 4, quote, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Wow. So we see yet again a mighty tempest over the water. Baptismal imagery. But does Jonah turn his heart back to God? Is this enough for the man who is supposed to fear the Lord? To actually fear the Lord? I mean, don't you think it's kind of strange that he doesn't actually fear the Lord when that's how he, he even describes himself? He identifies himself to sailors as a man, a Hebrew, who fears the Lord, the God who creates the heavens and the earth, but yet he doesn't actually fear the Lord. That's kind of ironical, don't you think? Verse 5, Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried to his God, and they threw the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down in the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Verse 6. So the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call upon your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we do not perish. Unquote. So look, look who fears the Lord and look who doesn't fear the Lord. Jonah the prophet, the one, the Hebrew who fears the Lord, doesn't actually fear the Lord. No, instead, he goes down to the bottom of the ship. So he doesn't arise. He keeps going down, down to Joppa, and now down to the bottom of the ship. And it's the sailors, it's the Gentiles who actually fear the Lord, unlike this mighty prophet, right? 
So the Gentiles fear the Lord, and they didn't want to shed innocent blood, right? So what happens? They cast lots, and it falls on Jonah. And then Jonah ends up spilling the beans. He ends up telling these Gentile sailors who he is. He's a Hebrew who fears the Lord, and he's running from God. And they are like, what? Why are you doing that? But notice, as I said already, uh, the, the language in verse 9 of chapter 1. Quote, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land, unquote. This language should, should definitely recall for us Genesis chapter 1 and how God created the heavens and the earth and he created the sea and the dry land. He, he created the, the ability for the water to recede and the dry land to appear just like it did for Noah as well. And so we have this imagery of a man with water and land all over again. Are you thinking Adam? Are you thinking Noah? You should be. Are you thinking Moses? You should be. Because uh, it's all linked typologically, right? Notice also the sailors grow exceedingly afraid. If you read the rest of Jonah, you'll you'll find out that that Jonah doesn't grow exceedingly afraid. Instead, we're told that he grows exceedingly angry with God. Another ironic contrast between these Gentile sailors and a prophet of the Most High God, right? So what does Jonah do here? He begs to be thrown overboard. The, the Gentiles, they throw over all the wares, right? They throw all of this possession, the cargo, into the sea, and it doesn't do a, a lick of a difference for them. The sea is as raging as it ever was, right? So he begs to throw him, you know, throw me in the sea, he says, but they don't want to do it. They don't want to shed innocent blood, right? Uh, let's look at verse 14 through 17, quote, therefore they cried to the Lord, the Gentiles did, we beseech thee, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. So they took up Jonah and threw him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights." Unquote. So instead of arising, Jonah keeps going down, down to Joppa, down to the bottom of the boat, and now down to the, to the depths of Sheol, to the depths of the sea in the belly of this whale, right? Now, God appointed this great fish, not a sea monster, a fish, to, to consume him, right? And then in the belly, in the midst of this depth, what happens? Jonah proclaims a Todah psalm. This should also remind you of, of Psalm 22, the very psalm that our Lord quoted from on the cross. Again, another link, a typology, a foreshadowing for what would come, a true prophet, one greater than a prophet, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who on the cross, before he enters into his Sheol, into his watery grave, into his, uh, the, the belly of the fish, if you want to call it that, uh, he proclaims a Todah Psalm too, just like this prophet does. Now, a, a Todah starts off in lamenting, right? But it ends with praise, praise to God, right? 
prays to the Almighty that he would, he, would, he would just tell the whole world, the whole congregation of the mightiness of God. And then Jonah prays, actually prays to live. You'll see later on that he, in chapter 4, he prays to die. Another ironical contrast. But notice in, uh, in verse 6, the bars of Sheol will not prevail against him. That's uh, Jonah chapter 2, verse 6, the bars of Sheol. This is a fantastic link to St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 18, quote, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the powers of death, or other translations say the gates of Hades, shall not prevail against it. It's the same image in, in both Jonah and in Matthew. Our Lord is bringing that forward for a good reason. Now let's get back to Jonah chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Quote, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to thee. What I have vowed I will pay. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon dry land. Unquote. So you see, Jonah is resurrected after three days. Uh, chapter 1, verse 17 says specifically that he was there for three days and three nights. Notice the same elements as we saw with Adam and with Noah, man is placed on land, on dry land, right? Like Adam in the garden, like Noah on the mountain, like Christ at the right hand of the Father. We see this image, right? Finally, Jonah arises. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, quote, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Unquote. So, finally, finally, instead of going down, 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 Jonah arises and he finally goes and preaches. And he waits for the destruction of the Ninevites. They were his enemy. He wanted the Ninevites to be destroyed because there was numerous warnings from God to the prophets like Hosea that the, the, the ten northern tribes, Ephraim, were going to the Ninevites. They were going to Assyria. They were going to be destroyed by the Assyrians. He knew this, and he didn't want to play any part in, in helping the Assyrians be a, an instrument in the hand of God to destroy his own people. He was a patriot right? Not a coward. He was a patriot. Why did he run the other way? Because he knew that God would forgive them if they only repented. He knew that God was going to be gracious, merciful, slow to anger. That, that threefold characteristic of God that was announced to Moses by God in Exodus chapter 34 verses 5 through 9. That God would, would repent of, of his warning against them if they only repented. That he would, he would forgive them if they only sought forgiveness. And they were his sons too. They might not be the firstborn of God. That was Israel, told to Pharaoh. But they still are sons. And God actually ends the book of Jonah with that note. That, come on, Jonah, shouldn't I love them like you love that plant that covered your head? You got to read Jonah. You could read it in 25 minutes. But you'll see at the end... God's love for his own people. And because of the stiff-necked, hard hearts of the, of the Samaritans, the ten northern tribes, turning their hearts away from God to these calves and idol worship again, 
that he would send forth the Assyrians to decimate them. He would force them to go out and mix with the Gentiles when they wouldn't do it on their own because they were told that they were a kingdom of priests. They had to go out to the world to bring back the other sons of God back to him. But they didn't go out. Instead, they turned their hearts away, and so God forced them out through the decimation of the ten northern tribes. And ultimately, a similar fate would happen to the Judeans, right? Because the Babylonian king would come and carry them off. Only God's promise that the scepter would not depart from them from the end of Genesis never went away because we do have a Davidic king today. It's Jesus Christ, right? But notice that Jesus is the new and greater Jonah. If you read Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27, you'll see that our Lord is also asleep on a boat, on a raging storm, on water. And these, these disciples, sailors, if you will, are also exceedingly fearing the Lord, right? If you look at verse 26, Jesus, after being awoken, by these disciples says, quote, And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O men of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? Unquote. Notice the similarities between the two episodes. Both are on a ship. Both include a massive tempest. Both have frightened sailors. Both have prophets asleep on the boat. Both have sailors who beg for their lives to be saved. Both in both cases, the prophets act and the seas are calmed. And in both cases, the sailors marvel. Notice also that the Gentile sailors for Jonah, they cast lots. These sailors give thanks or Eucharist to God. These sailors offer a sacrifice to God. They act like priests. So what does that say? If we're comparing and contrasting the story of Jonah to this episode in the gospel, if the Gentile sailors are priests, then what are the apostles in the boat with our Lord Jesus, but priests themselves in the sacrament of baptism? May God richly bless you. From the Catholic Underground. Based on digital.